Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. As well, if you're a fan of Canadian history, make sure you check out all of my shows, from John to Justin, Canadian History X, Canada, A Yearly Journey, and Pucks and Cups, along with Canada's Great War. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. Just click Donate. It helps keep this show going. And all donations in September will be going to the SPCA in the memory of my best pal Boris, who sadly passed away earlier this month. Okay, on with the show. Canada can be a divided country at times. We divide ourselves linguistically, geographically, politically, and ideologically. There is one thing that tends to bring us together though, like nothing else, and that is hockey. There have been many times that Canada has been united. In 2010, when Sidney Crosby scored the golden goal. He's on the ice with a Ginlock. A Ginlock scores it! Sidney Crosby! The golden goal! In 1987, when Wayne Gretzky and Mario Lemieux created magic in the Canada Cup to win it for Canada. Our Chuck wins it in. Here's Lemieux poking at the center. Lemieux ahead to Gretzky. Has Berkeley with him on a two on one. Go Lemieux. And on goal. He shoots. He scores! Mario Lemieux with 1.26 remaining. But nothing compares to, nor will ever compare to, the goal to end all goals for Canada. Savard, Savard cleared the pass to Stapleton. He cleared to the open wing to Cornwallier. Cornwallier took a shot. The defenseman fell over, Liapkin. And the Cornwallier has it on that wing. Here's a shot. Henderson made a wild stab for it and fell. Here's another shot. Right by the score. Before we get into the Summit Series, we need to go back to the beginning of international hockey and Canada's dominance in the sport. In this episode, I'm looking at the background of what led to the Summit Series and the negotiations that helped make it happen. In 1920, the Summer Olympics were held, and this is considered to be the first ice hockey world championship. They were in the Summer Olympics because the Winter Olympics didn't exist yet. Representing Canada were the Winnipeg Falcons. The Falcons had won the Allen Cup in 1920, and the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association chose the team to represent Canada, rather than putting together an all-star team of players to go to Belgium. The team was managed by W.A. Hewitt, known as Billy Hewitt, 
and this creates a direct connection for us to the Summit Series. Hewitt was the secretary of the Ontario Hockey Association from 1903 to 1966 and was the sports editor of the Toronto Daily Star from 1900 to 1931. He was also a member of the Canadian Olympic Committee from 1920 to 1932, leading to his direct involvement in the selection of the teams that would represent Canada in hockey. His son was a man by the name of Foster Hewitt, the legendary CBC broadcaster and the man who would come out of retirement to call the Summit Series. On the Falcons were three players who would play in the NHL eventually, including Frank Fredrickson, who would be inducted into the Hockey Hall of Fame in 1958 and was called by the Victoria Daily Times the Babe Ruth of Hockey. On April 24, 1920, Canada took on Czechoslovakia, dominating the team 15-0 and moving on to play the United States. In the semi-final game, Canada won 2-0 and moved on to play Sweden, which had not given up a goal in their games against Belgium and France. There would be no match for Canada, though, who won 12-1 in the gold medal game. It wasn't easy growing up on Sargent Avenue. Bunch of Icelandic boys, nobody wanted around. But hockey was good to us. We're signing up then, George. <laughs> Only if Connie here joins up with us. <laughs> and the war came along. Broke up the team. But we were needed. Yeah, and we went. It cost us. Too much, maybe. I don't know. But I do know one thing. We still got some fight left in us, right boys? It's the game we've been saving it for. For us. Yeah. For Canada. Yeah. For the boys of Sergeant Avenue. The Winnipeg Falcons served Canada in the First World War. Two teammates never made it home. The rest went on to win the very first gold medal in Olympic hockey. This would be the start of Canadian domination in international hockey, lasting for the next three decades, during which time Canada won 15 of 20 Olympic or World Championships. At the Olympics from 1920 to 1952, Canada won every single gold medal except for 1936, when Great Britain won, but that team was mostly made up of Canadians who were living in the United Kingdom. At the individual ice hockey world championships held outside of the Olympic years, Canada was typically the gold medal winners. From 1930 to 1955, Canada won 10 gold medals. For those decades, it was felt that a Canadian team playing hockey in the World Championships or Olympics was almost a guaranteed gold. Things were beginning to change though. While Canada was a pinnacle of hockey success in the international world from the 1920s to the 1940s, Europe was taking notice and beginning to catch up. In 1953, Canada was so disinterested in international hockey due to its dominance that the country didn't even send a team to the World Championships. In 1954, the Soviet Union entered the World Championships for the first time, and Canada sent the Toronto Senior B East York Lindhurts to the tournament, who hadn't even won the Allen Cup. The team played in the Ontario Hockey Association and had finished with a record of 29-9-2 in that season, in which they had lost the league final. The team had been selected by George Dudley, the secretary manager of the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association. The 1953 Allen Cup champs declined and no senior A-level team accepted the offer. The senior B-level champions from Kingston also declined and so did their opponents in the final, Woodstock. The Lindhurts were the first team to actually accept the invitation. By this point, Canadians winning internationally was such a given that the announcement of the team taking part in the tournament received nearly no press coverage and the team did not even see an increase in home game attendance. At one game, only 20 spectators showed up for the team. And while there was criticism over how the team was selected, that faded away as Canada once again dominated on the ice, 
winning their first six games by outscoring their opponents 57-5. The team bowled over all their opponents and reached the final against the Soviet Union, making the Lindhurts the first Canadian team to face the Soviets. The Soviets were not unprepared for the game, having researched the Lindhurts in advance. The Edmonton Journal reported, quote, it is believed the Russians are getting here early so they can see the Canadians play an exhibition game against Sweden on the 19th, end quote. In the game, the Soviets played an aggressive and physical game, often beating the Canadians to the puck. By the end of the first period, Canada was losing 4-0, and then 7-1 after the second period. The game would finish with a 7-2 score for the Soviets, who would erupt it onto the world stage of hockey, leaving Canadians shocked. The Toronto Daily Star ran a headline stating, quote, Reds give us a lesson in the game we invented." End quote. The Winnipeg Free Press said that the defeat of Canada was the best thing that could have happened, while journalist Elmer Ferguson stated, quote, "...it was a national calamity, a national humiliation, a mortifying experience." End quote. Let's take a journey back to 2003. Canadian teen sensation Avril Lavigne was topping the charts and turning the music industry upside down. But what if I told you that the Avril Lavigne we know and love might not be the same Avril? What? Did Avril die? Was she replaced by a doppelganger? I'm Joanne McNally and I'm doing a deep dive into a notorious internet conspiracy. Who replaced Avril Lavigne? Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And while the Lindhurts had no coverage leaving Canada, they received a lot coming back with reporters waiting in the airport for them and even trying to talk to players in the bathroom. Reg Sprague, who played for the team, would say, quote, you would have thought we lost World War III, not a hockey game." End quote. The Ottawa Citizen reported that the Soviet propagandists were feasting on the hockey triumph of the team, and Hockey Hall of Famer Lyle Conacher stated, quote, "...we can't weep about the Russians beating us 7-2, but we can do something about it in the future. We can send to Europe exactly what we've got, and that's the best hockey players in the world, or we can stay right out of these championships." End quote. The federal government would state it would not provide federal funds for future teams, which was a reason many teams did not go to the tournament. The cost was simply too much, leaving Canada to send teams that were far from the best that they had. And while Canada tried to determine what went wrong, the Soviets began their era of dominance. The Soviet Union would win the first Olympic gold medal in 1956 and won every single Olympic gold until the Summit Series was held, except for 1960 when the United States won. In 1954, the Ice Hockey World Championships, the Soviet Union won another gold. From 1954 until 1972, the Soviets won eight gold medals at the World Championships, compared to four won by Canada. Canada would win the World Championship in 1961, and then would not win again until 1994. McLean's would write, quote, A short skate down memory lane. Ever since 1954, when the Russians showed up at the World Hockey Championships for the first time, and walloped a less than awesome senior B club known as the East York Lindhurst, Canada's ventures in international hockey have been fraught with peril, confused by politics, and highlighted by only intermittent triumph. Mostly the Canadian public has grumbled, either over the caliber of the teams we sent to play the world at our game, or at the rules and regulations the world enforced against us." End quote. In Canada, it was felt that the Soviet Union was dominating the sport because professionals could not play in these tournaments or at the Olympics. That prevented the best hockey players in Canada, those who were in the NHL, from being able to compete internationally. In contrast, the Soviet players were all considered amateurs, and even though their skill level was easily on par with the NHL, they could play against amateur players. 
These players, who came from the legendary teams of CSKA Moscow, Dynamo, and Spartak, played hockey full-time, trained constantly, and were paid by the government. With Canada seeming to fall behind internationally when it came to hockey, the Government of Canada created Hockey Canada to coordinate Canadian international play with various amateur organizations in the country, as well as the NHL. That same year, the IIHF allowed for the first time the inclusion of nine professional players for any event for one year. Canada entered a team with five professionals in the Investia tournament and nearly won it. In response, the IIHF held an emergency meeting in January 1970 and decided to no longer allow professionals. As a result of this, Canada withdrew from IIHF play and the 1970 IIHF World Championships, which would be held in Canada for the first time and were instead moved to Sweden. This brings us to the first rumblings of a tournament between the two hockey powerhouses featuring NHL players. During the winter of 1971-72, Gary Smith, a diplomat in the Soviet Union who was responsible for sport and cultural exchanges with the country, heard that the Soviet Union was looking for new challenges when it came to hockey. Smith, seeing an opportunity, met with a sports editor from a newspaper in Moscow who was able to get him in touch with Andrei Staroviatov, the hockey boss for the Soviets. He told Smith that the Soviets were ready to play against professional players from Canada. The idea began to move through the channels and eventually reached Ambassador Robert Ford, who brought it to Ottawa to work with Hockey Canada to begin planning the possible tournament. On April 18, 1972, after negotiations were held at the Hotel International Prague during the 1972 World Ice Hockey Championship, an agreement was signed between the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association and the Soviet Union Ice Hockey Federation. A Soviet spokesperson would say, quote, we may count on Canada fielding her actual best players, regardless of whether they're amateurs or professionals." End quote. Gordon Jukes, a spokesman for the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association, stated that both NHL and the NHL Players Association had pledged their support to field a strong Canadian team. Through the negotiations, it was agreed four games would be held in Canada in Montreal, Toronto, Winnipeg and Vancouver, while four games would be held in the Soviet Union, all in Moscow. It was also agreed that the tournament would be played in September and with international rules. IIHF referees from America would be used in Canada, and European referees would be used in Moscow, using a two-referee system with two linesmen. Money from the television broadcast for games in Canada would remain in the country, while money for games in Moscow would stay in Europe. Initial expectations in Canada were that players such as Bobby Orr, Bobby Hull, and Ken Dryden would be on the team and as early as April 20th, news reached the papers that Orr would definitely be playing, with his agent, Alan Eagleson, stating, quote, He has expressed interest to do so, end quote. Bruins president, Weston Adams Jr., would say there was no way Orr or Phil Esposito would play for the Canadian team as training camp was going to be happening in September. Sid Abel, manager of the St. Louis Blues, said he would not allow his players to play in the team. Eagleson would say, quote, it is unfortunate that the vested interests of the owners and journal managers are interfering in this matter. As for Adams, he's an American and couldn't care less about the player's loyalty to his country. As for Abel, he couldn't care less and has no interest in Canada. He's forgotten where he came from." End quote. Sam Pollock, manager of the Montreal Canadiens, took a different stance, stating that any player on the Canadiens who was selected for the team could play. He would say, quote, I'm sure every player who is a Canadian citizen will be willing to play. End quote. The Toronto Maple Leafs would also agree to send their players. As we will see in the coming episode, neither Orr nor Bobby Hall would be on the team due to injuries and anger over a rival league. 
But we're getting ahead of ourselves, and I'll be talking about building the team in the next episode. As for the Canadians and the Soviets, they both believed that their team would dominate the tournament with little difficulty. Hockey icon Jean Beliveau would say on April 20th, quote, There is no doubt in my mind the NHL will win, end quote. Beliveau, Canada, and the Russians would be wrong. Thank you for joining me on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Maclean's, NHL.com, Toronto Star, Wikipedia, Calgary Herald, and the Montreal Star. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of producer Dila Velasquez. Audio design and production by Rob Johnson. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help others find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. And we love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com. And don't forget to stop by my website and social media. I've included all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.